0: We think it's important that children join us in worship learn uh, the song, but also to watch you as adults worship God yeah, they're watching you if you're playing on your phone, if you are distracted, they see everything don't they? And So please be encouraged that they are here also to watch you and make sure that your heart is pure for worship as well and so the children will uh, we're going to start bringing the children back up for the last song of the service they can continue to worship with us and learn God's Word and learn about Psalms, uh, worship Christ. Our passage is in Luke chapter 9. And let me open up my new If so We have a Bible or a phone of some sort with a, an app for the Bible. We open that up to Luke chapter 9. We will be in the book of Luke the rest of the month of May that then we will move into the book of Ecclesiastes starting in June, the first Sunday of June. We'll be in Ecclesiastes for the entire summer, and then we'll be back in Luke for, Well, actually, we'll not get back to Luke until probably late September. So a little bit of an uh, overview of what to look forward to uh, when it comes to sermons here on Sunday morning. Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 10. On their return, the apostles told him all they had done, and he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethedia. When the crowd learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God, and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, "Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place." Verse 13. But he said to them, you give them some, you give them something to eat. They said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we are to go and buy food for all of these people. For there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, had them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so and had them all sit down and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and set a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. Verse 17. They all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was packed with picked up, twelve baskets, broken pieces. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, we come to you this morning, Lord, asking that you would speak to us through your word. Lord, we've already praised your name, we've worshipped your name, Lord. We've confessed sins, we've confirmed uh, confirmed in our assurance of pardon, Lord, that we have a pardon, that our sins have been pardoned by the blood of Christ. Lord, now we've we've read your word and look to be taught by your word, Lord, I pray that you would teach us. Convict us, Lord, we're lacking, convict us of sin in our hearts. Teach us, Lord, and encourage us through your word. Lord, well, we pray for uh, a missionary family in China, and Nathan, Abigail, and Brim, Lord, who are trained pastors. Uh, I got an email just recently that, that, that the police and the government have, in a sense, tagged them and, and are watching them and watching their movements, Lord, and I pray for their ministry. I thank you for Nathan's faith, Lord, and saying things like, well, we're here to train pastors and if it's God's will to send us away, that we will repair the pastors well, but I thank you for their for their ministry. I thank you for their their example, Lord. Pray, Lord, that we as a church would continue to pray for them and help them where we where we see fit to help them more, or how you see to use us there. Lord, we pray, Lord, for our friends in Nepal and our pastor friends in Nepal, like Simpson and Udav and others lord that we're looking forward to, to revisiting in the coming weeks lord we pray for the team that goes we pray for safe travel lord, we pray that you would make use us and that we would have effective ministry there but we pray lord that we would be an encouragement and a, and a voice and, and hands of support for the pastors there where i pray lord for friends here that are struggling in sickness and and maybe our way traveling, pray for relationships, Lord, that are fractured, Lord. We pray, Lord, that, that you would reconcile those relationships, because reconciliation only comes through you. Lord, we pray for those who are on, uh, like Alan, who is on patrol, Lord. He's uh, he's with the guard this weekend, Lord. We pray for him, pray that you would encourage him. Lord, we pray for other members of this church who are not with us, Lord. We pray, Lord, that you would uh, bring them back to us next week. We thank you for new guests that are here as well. Pray, Lord, that they would feel welcome and loved. Love you, and we praise you just saying Um, funny little joke. Um, so Stan Barringer always brings Christianity day to uh, Denton. and a lot of times Denton leaves it here, and I steal it and take it home. Um, and he doesn't even like notice it because I don't even know if, if didn't reads it or not. He may read it a little bit, but most—if you know Christianity, a lot of it's just ads, anyways. Uh, For, like, seminaries and schools, but there's some pretty good articles in Christianity Today. And I get it once in a while in the mail. I'm always shocked to get it because I don't think I get it regularly. But then I get this random, like, magazine in the mail. And of course, I, you know, read it. Um, And so the one that um, was for this uh, past month, for April, was an interesting article about mission work in Thailand. So knowing that, if you know me, you know my, my parents live in Southeast Asia, live in Singapore, and so my dad travels to Thailand a lot, and to Malaysia, Indonesia. He just got back from India uh, this past week, and I was talking to him on the phone. So I'm always interested in Southeast Asia. I mean, um, I went to Indonesia for a few weeks in, in seminary, and so I'm always curious about what mission work is going on in that part of the world. And so the cover article was about mission work in Thailand, and, and, uh, and so, you know, I go to the feature article, I read it, and it's fascinating what God's doing in the nation of Thailand. Um, and what is interesting what is being, what what resources are being used to reach people with the gospel. Most of Thailand is Buddhist. Um, about 90, I want to say 95% of the country are, the people are Buddhist. Um, and so there's this man who's American. He actually was a lay elder at uh, David Fletch Church in Birmingham. So he served with David Platt, but he was a missionary kid in Thailand, and he had come back to the states, lived in the states, and then went back in the mid two thousands or whatever to to work uh, with the, Thai, the the church in, in Thailand. And uh, he was an IT guy. He um, was when he went back to the United States, he got a degree in computer science, and he he designed software. That's what he did. And so he took this profession, he took this experience and skills that he had, and he applied it to the mission field in Thailand. And so what he did was he created this software, this database, to be able to to track where churches are in Thailand. Um, You have a large population, you have an, an island country, a lot of villages. And you just don't know which villages have churches and which villages don't have churches. And so the the, the leaders, the church leaders in Thailand were recognizing that they didn't really know where there were churches and where there weren't churches. And so he created this software and they found out that there was about 62 and a half million people who lived in communities without any Christian neighbors. They didn't know that until they started to put in the data into this database that this man, Ralph uh, Dwight Martin had created. So he built this national church database that actually became one of the largest church databases in the world. This man, Dwight Martin, created. And he called it Harvest. And it was a software that was used in not only Thailand, but used in Vietnam, Myanmar, Laos as well. So a lot of these South um, Southeast Asian nations were using this software to be able to track where there were churches and where there weren't churches. Places so they could go, okay, this place isn't reached. We need to go to these places and but it's a church. And so he built this database, and this organization that he worked with in Thailand was called Free in Jesus Christ Church Association, FJCCA. And they found out that while Protestantism had been in Thailand for over 190 years, they found out that only that 95% of the 80,000 villages in Thailand did not have a church. They didn't know that until they started using this database that the nation was 0.1% Christian. Not 1%, but 0.1% Christian. So being able to see the data, seeing where they were were lacking to have churches, where where, where Christians were lacking, they started, it gave them motivation to go and share the gospel. So in 54 days, after utilizing this database, they planted 74 churches in 54 days. Like, that's mind-blowing, right? 74 churches in 54 days. That's like a month and a half. And they saw 782 new believers in 54 days. It became known as the fastest growing church planning movement in in that nation's history. So they they started this other other kind of group called Reach a Village. the, the, The desire was this organization was to see a church started in every village. So they started utilizing... Dwight Martin Software, to be able to plant churches in every village. Another man named Bob Kraft, who's another missionary in Cambodia, was also doing similar things to be able to reach every village with the gospel. And the reason why I share this story with you is because that's mind-boggling. This is the overwhelming task of reaching so many people with the gospel because there just weren't churches in so many places in this particular part of the world. And so that's why I have titled the sermon uh, "The Church's Overwhelming Task," like, to just understand how so many people in the world have no access to the gospel, have no access to a church. Now we here are so um, we are so rich in wealthy, right? We can go to whatever church we want. There's churches on every block of the town. I would say some are not worth going to, and others are more worth going to. But we have churches all over town, right? There are some places in the world that do not have one church to choose from. Isn't that crazy? Not one church. Not one Christian in the entire village or neighborhood. you know. And, and, and so it's an overwhelming task. This, I mean, people do not have Christ, and God has called us to reach them with the gospel. It's an overwhelming task. And so, look, present a little context here. Uh, obviously, what I preached on last week um, in uh, Luke, uh, verse chapter nine, verse one through nine, that that Jesus uh, has called these twelve men. He's called them the saving faith. We see this in John one and Luke chapter five. They have they've been called to discipleship, like with uh, Peter and James and John and Andrew, how they were they were on their fishing boats, and Jesus told them to, to cast a net on the other side, and He told them to follow Him he make them fishers of men, and they dropped everything they did, they dropped their fishing, and they wouldn't follow Christ. Full-time discipleship. Luke chapter 6, Christ calls them to be apostles. He, he then starts to train them and prepare them for ministry, because Jesus' time on earth is coming to an end. He's coming to the tail end of his ministry, and so he wants to prepare these men for when he leaves, that they will be able to carry on the mission and the, the, and the, uh, the message of the kingdom of God. So he then sends them out in Luke 9, 1 through 6, right? They've been trained, they've been prepared, now it's their internship, right? Now it's their clinical hours. He he sends them out on a a, a mission, on a task, by themselves. Jesus is not going to go with them. So they go on this this journey, they do these things that he calls them to, to go and proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal and to uh, do miracles. And they return to report what they did. And so, during this time, Herod the king heard about what's happening. Right? It says uh, before our passage today in verse seven. Now, Herod the tree, uh, hes the fourth king of four kings, right? So he's the king of Galilee. He's the king that chopped John the Baptist's head off. Right? We know about this guy. We know about his his character. We, he's the man at the end of the story that that uh, put that puts Jesus on trial after Pilate mocks Jesus. He hears about what the disciples were doing. The disciples were making some noise. They were healing people. They were teaching. It arouses Herod, who ruled Galilee. Herod was perplexed, it says. He was confused. Why was he confused? Because he just shot John the Baptist's head off. He thought that all that type of stuff would end when John the Baptist had died. And so he thinks maybe John the Baptist has risen from the dead and he's come back to haunt him. So, these disciples aren't giving credit to John the Baptist, are they? They're giving credit to Jesus. They are disciples of Christ. And he's like, who is Jesus? Who's this Jesus Christ? I know about John. I chopped his head off. I know all about him. I like John, but my wife didn't like him, so I chopped his head off. Who is this Jesus? He's haunted by the possibility that John is risen from the dead. Know, he knows very little about Jesus, so he's curious to me about Christ. Obviously, we know about this Herod. He's the one in Luke 13 who wanted to kill Christ. Like I said before, in Luke 20, 23, he mocks Christ when Jesus is on trial. But he's curious about meeting Christ. So, that prepares that these disciples had done, obviously, had done some things. They had taught, they had healed, and so they returned back to Christ. And it says in our passage today that they returned to the apostles, the apostles returned to Christ. And they told him all that, had, that they had done. And so that they report to Jesus all that had happened. Now, we don't know exactly in any details, or a lot of details, what they actually did. They don't have any stories, we don't have any episodes to go off of. But they report back to Christ what they experienced, what they saw, what they did. And I think there's an important part of evangelism and ministry, the importance of sharing stories. Stories are so important. Reporting what God has done through His church and through His people is so encouraging. Sometimes we don't tell stories very well, right? We don't share what God is doing because probably we feel shame that God's not doing really anything significant or special through us. Therefore, what do we have to report? But stories are so important. They bring encouragement. They bring boldness. We know that the book of Acts, when... Peter uh, and, and John when well, they were brought before the council and they went and reported to the rest of the church what had happened and the church was full of boldness because of the stories they told we know from Acts 11, 1-18 uh, through 18, when Peter told the story of how the Gentiles the gospel of Christ Jesus had come to the Gentiles and that Cornelius and his family had received Christ and were baptized and received the Holy Spirit he reports this to the rest of the church and they are full of joy so stories are so important. It's so encouraging. It's, it brings boldness. Make it known what God is doing through you. It encourages other people. It leads to boldness for others. Um, that's why it's, you know, it's important like, when, when mission trip teams come back. when we came from, I know from I know David's not in here anymore, but David and, and McKenzie started coming to our church about the time that we came back from the fall. And they were a part of like a summer, we had a summer Bible study, and we were sitting down talking about Nepal and we were sharing stories, right? And what David told me, David Greenwood, it encouraged him. Our stories and what God did while we were there encouraged him. It brought him boldness. We don't tell enough stories about what God's doing in our lives. We should be putting ourselves in situations to share stories about what God is doing. And so Jesus, they come back, they're reporting to Christ what they did, what they saw, and he then takes them with him to withdraw privately to a city called Asera. Now, the first point is that Christ provides physical and spiritual rest for his church from their work. So they come back, Jesus takes them away, they withdraw privately, they go away. The disciples return from this journey where they weren't, weren't able to take any money, they couldn't take an extra they couldn't take a, a stick, they couldn't take a lot of, of supplies, and so they're tired from their journey. They're tired from their work. They're weary from their work. So when they return, they needed rest, and Jesus provides them rest. They retreat, and we know from Jesus' life and from his, uh, his example that he retreated in prayer and solitude from the weariness of his work. We see this from Matthew fourteen twenty three. He sends the crowd away. And then retreats to the mountain to be with the Lord, right? Jesus regularly is seen withdrawing himself from others, from his ministry, from his work, to rest. I'm thinking Jesus probably rests physically and also spiritually. The disciples needed physical rest. Jesus takes them to rest from their work. They needed physical rest. The most faithful thing that you can do as a Christian is to get rest. Because what happens when we don't get rest? We become very angry. We don't speak very lovingly and very compassionate with the people in our lives. Um, it leads to uh, taking, being inconsiderate of other people. We tend to be less patient in our attitude. We lack love when we don't get a lot of rest and sleep. Sleeping, can, Lack of sleep can lead to a lot of sin in our lives. So I want to encourage you. I know some of you have. It's hard to find sleep. But finding sleep and finding rest is so important to your spiritual walk because you are not encouraged when you are just dead tired and continuing to work, 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 work. And Jesus is the one who knows this as well. Jesus, the Son of God, also recognizes the importance of rest and provides rest for his disciples after their journey. But not just physical rest, but he also provides spiritual rest. Jesus would retreat to the mountain to pray, right? Not to veg, not to watch television, not to get away and have a vacation. He is having spiritual rest. We see him him in solitude. He probably is getting sleep, but he's also in prayer. Prayer, and in God's word, brings spiritual rest. Christ took them to a city away from the crowd to feast on his work. To spend time with Christ, to be nourished by Him and His presence. The reason why pastors get burned out, there's, a, there's an article after article after article after article talking about pastors who get burnt out and quit the ministry. And a lot of times they blame it on the ministry or the work. All the work is so difficult, church members are so hard to deal with, congregations are so frustrating. The problem is, is that very few pastors actually get spiritual rest. They work, 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 and work. They give, 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 and give. And they never, ever, ever spend time with God. And so because they're always working and always burning themselves out, they never take time for solitude and prayer. Lack of spiritual rest is unhelpful to the people. You can't help people. You can't minister to people. You can't be what you're called to do if you don't take spiritual rest. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, took spiritual rest and was in solitude with his Father. And if Christ has to do that, so do we. So do I. You know, one of, the, one of my stories from Sweden that I may not have told before, but Sweden was a very difficult year of my life because, number one, um, I li- the first time I lived away from my family for so long, uh, I was in a different country, and I was gone for a whole year, and I had to raise up a lot of money to go. And so, um, while I was there, when it got towards the winter time, it got really dark, got really cold, and I started to get really very depressed. I, I missed my family. I just wanted to go home. And I got homesick, it just really kind of hit me around that December, January time. Well, around February, one of the things that we were able to do is we were able to go to Spain for a week, and get out of, get out of, uh, out of the country. And I'll tell you, that one week in Spain saved my entire year. Because what I, what I got to do was, is I got to get physical rest, and I got spiritual rest because I was able to worship with other believers who knew English, I just spent more time in God's Word. I did some things like went hiking and running, and did some other things with some people that encouraged me. It was so encouraging. I would not have made it that whole year without that time of rest. And actually, my last several months in Sweden were such a joy and blessing to my life. And I don't think it would have happened if I didn't get the rest that I needed in that one week. It's important that we find rest, and that's just physical rest, but spiritual. Try to find time in your week. I know it's difficult. Find time in your month. Find time in your year to be quiet and and get get away and spend time with God and get spiritual rest. You need physical rest, but you also need rest in God's Word. The second point is that Christ provides uh, a commission. uh, I'm sorry, Christ, Christ provides compassion in an unwelcoming circumstance. Christ provides compassion in an unwelcoming circumstance. So the crowd, so they go to this town, they get away, they want solitude, they want to be away from the crowd, right? And what happens? The crowd follows them, and and they want to be with Christ. They want to hear his words, they want to be healed by Christ, and so they go and find his disciples in Christ. So interesting that it's obvious that Jesus and his disciples do not want to be around the crowd, right? They want to get away. They want to be in private. They want to be in solitude. They want to spend time in prayer. They want to spend time together. Jesus may want to teach them more, but yet the crowd follows them. Jesus desired to be alone with his disciples. There was a desirable plan, a desirable expectation. However, the crowd... But what what does Jesus do? He doesn't push them away. He doesn't say, you're not welcome here. We're having time by ourselves. This is our time, not your time. He welcomes them, doesn't he? While his desire was to be alone with his disciples, his father's will was for him to minister to this, this crowd and teach and provide for his disciples. And this is the big part of the story. You, you'll miss it if you read the story too fast. The story is not about the crowd, it's about the disciples. It's all about them. It's the understanding not only uh, understanding God's will. I mean, Jesus already later on will teach them it's not my will, but your will be done when he prays to the Father in, in Gethsemane. We know that the Lord's prayer that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, it's about God's will. And Christ understands that. He understands the sovereignty of God and act knowing God is in control. God is in control. His Father is in control. And His will is for Christ to minister to these, this crowd at this point in time. Even though Jesus wants to be privately with His disciples, God's will is for Him to minister to this crowd. Or they would never have followed Him or found Him. Therefore, we don't get annoyed or frustrated when circumstances Turn out not what you expected or you desired. Jesus welcomed them and had compassion on them. He taught them the word. He healed them. He provided for their needs. God is in control. Therefore, we must be flexible to minister and love and encourage when it may not fit our desirable time frame. We We tell this to people when they go to Nepal that it's not about structure. It's about fluidity that you're weak, or you're there, it's all about fluidity. You're gonna do whatever we tell you to do or whatever the Nepalis tell us to do. It doesn't matter what you do, it doesn't matter if you're hungry or not hungry, we're gonna do what they tell us to do. Fluidity and flexibility is something that we as Americans do not do well with. We want structure, we want time frames, we wanna know exactly what we're doing every hour of the day, and it doesn't always work that way because God's will is above our will. He is the Lord over our time, And when he says you're going to minister to the crowd, you minister to the crowd. Regardless of what you desire, regardless if you want to be privately by yourselves, Christ ministered and welcomed them and showed compassion, even though it didn't fit the desirable circumstance. God is Lord over your time and circumstance. You may sometimes need to get up at 5 a.m. to have coffee with a friend and encourage them in the word. You may not want to get up at 5 a.m. You may not want to stay in bed. But sometimes we're called to do that. Sometimes we may need to have that family over for dinner when it's your date night, because that's what God calls us to do. We have a time frame, we have a structure. Sometimes that works out generally, but sometimes it doesn't work out. You may have to counsel a friend during your favorite show. You may have to talk to someone on the phone when it's during a time that you usually use for yourself. But sometimes God's will... It's for us to minister and to care and to show compassion, even though it doesn't fit our desirable circumstances. Sort of even the disciples were pretty ticked off, right? He says, release the crowd. They say, release the crowd. So that they may go into the surrounding villages and countrysides to find lodging and find food. Because we are in a desolate place. He says, get rid of the crowd. We're in a desolate place. It's getting late. Let's get out of here. Let's go away from them. You've ministered for far too long. The disciples have become concerned about the hour, the needs of the crowd, the place, and the lack of resources. was getting dark. We're in a bad area of town. Large group of people that needed to find food and shelter. They had no money. How are they going to help them? How are they going to supply them? Get rid of them, release them, so that we don't have to take care of them anymore. But Jesus continued to show compassion to the people, even though he was getting, it was getting dark and they were far from shelter and food. Jesus knows this, right? This Jesus is like, oh my gosh, what time is it? I totally missed it. I, I, I thought it was only five. I didn't know it was seven. Jesus is omniscient, He knows everything. He is in control of this entire situation. He is aware of everything. He is setting up the entire situation. Jesus would be the best poker player, right? I mean, he would set up plays Way ahead of time, right? If he was a chess player, he would set up moves from the first move until the tenth move. Like everything would be thought out. Game theory. Jesus was a on game theory. Ten moves ahead. Thinks beyond the immediate. This audience for the event, this episode, is the disciples. The episode is mentioned in all four gospels. You know, this is one of only a few stories in the Bible, in, in the gospels, that is mentioned in all four. Is this particular story. It's an important lesson for Christ's followers, his disciples, his church. This is an important lesson for us to take. And that's why it's in all four Gospels. So the third point is, is that Christ provides for his church to minister to the world. Christ provides for his church to minister to the world. So I use church here and not disciples because I want you to understand that this particular episode, what Jesus is teaching, is also applied to us, not just to the disciples. To see ourselves in the position of the disciples and recognize our our impossible and overwhelming tasks that we have to face as well. So he, Christ, so you have this this crowd. We don't know how many people are in the crowd yet, right? Be careful. You do not know how many people are in the crowd in the logical steps of the story. You have no idea that there's 5,000 people, do you? As you read this story. So what does Jesus tell the disciples? He says, you give them something to eat then." If you're so concerned about them getting shelter and lodging and food, you then give them something to eat. He places the burden on the disciples, not himself. Remember what happened just before this episode. He sends them off on a journey. He gives them authority. He gives them power to do healings. And now they're put into a test. They've been trained. They've got experience. They've been empowered. They've been given a surprise exam by Christ. Even John 6.6 6 calls it a test. Jesus gives them a test. This entire thing is a test. To apply what they learned. It's an opportunity to apply what they learned. And they're freaked out, man. I mean, because what ends up happening, we find out that there's 5,000 people. Men. There's 5,000 men. Which is not counting the women and the children. Most likely, we're talking about fifteen to 20,000 people. That is a large group of people that these 12 men are now responsible to feed. We're not talking about wealthy people, man. We're not talking about Bill Gates pulling out a, a credit card and just, you know, charging it. You've got 12 far, fairly poor guys who are now responsible to feed these 20,000 people. The hour's late. They have limited resources. We find out all they have is five loaves, five loaves and two fish. They even said, unless we're supposed to go buy all these people food, and they even said in John that it would be over 200 denarii, which would be almost a year's, work, a year's worth of salary, they had no way in their minds to be able to fix this problem. So Christ just throws out this test. You feed them. <laughs> you understand what the disciples were like, whoa, 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 all we have is five fish, I mean, five breads and two fish. How are we supposed to feed them? I mean, we can be pretty hard on the disciples, can't we? We can be really hard on Peter. We can be really hard on John and James. We can read the Gospels and kind of chuckle. But put yourself in the same situation. You are someone that Jesus says, you go feed these 20,000 people right now. What are you going to do? You're going to freak out, aren't you? Because you have no resources whatsoever to be able to accomplish this. It's an overwhelming task. Unfit for the calling and task. But... The disciples forgot the very important truth. The task overwhelmed them, but they overlooked an enormous detail to solve the problem at hand, didn't it? Does anyone know the problem? Do you recognize the variable they totally overlooked? Jesus tells them what? He tells them to organize, right? Set the people in 50s. He tells them to organize them. They did it, right? Jesus... Tells the disciples to go off and organize these people in groups, and they go off and do it. He blesses the food. He thanked God for the provision, which is why we pray before meals, and we bless the food. He broke up the food, gave the food to the disciples. The disciples then distributed the food to the crowd. The disciples fed the crowd. See, we don't know based off the story if the, if the crowd ever interacted or knew that Jesus broke up the bread of the fish. We have no idea. Think about the reaction that Jesus usually got from miracles, awe, wonder. You get no awe. You get no wonder you? Because I don't think the crowd knew who did the food. The disciples were the ones to distribute the food. Why? Because Jesus told them to feed them. He told the disciples... To feed the people. The crowd, Christ provided for his disciples so that they could fulfill their commission. Christ told them to feed the crowd. They were unable in their own strength to feed the crowd. They also forgot to understand the considerable worth wealth at their disposal, which was Christ Jesus Himself. So faithfulness, they had very little, but the, the big application here is to be faithful. Understanding that we are in Christ, understanding that we have the wealth of Christ at our disposal, and to be faithful in whatever circumstances or situation God puts us in, God Christ provides for His disciples. Hence, why the next story that we read in our declaration of party, He says, "Who do you say that I am? You're the Christ, the Son of the Living God." Why? Because what you just did, what we just saw, the story is not about the crowd. We get caught thinking that, yes, Jesus fed the 5,000. But the bigger story is that he provided for his disciples in their tasks that he commissioned them to do. Herod is seeking Christ. His ministry is coming to an end. These men are about to lead a movement that will change history forever. And they need to know who has sent them. And it's the one who is the son of the living God. He will provide them. He will provide for their needs in accomplishing this overwhelming task. Because the task is going to get harder. It's not simply just feeding 5,000, it's reaching the nations with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Wherever He may send you or us, He will provide. Now, I like to tell this story because I think it's a little crazy. But the Castro's being in Evansville, I think it's a bit crazy because. To be honest, like if you don't know the story already, we didn't know we didn't know the place existed. I didn't even know it was on a map. I didn't know there was a town in Indiana called Evansville that was right across the Ohio River from Kentucky. I, I lived in Louisville. I had no idea Evansville existed. I didn't know anyone from Evansville. Never met anyone from Evansville. I never even heard Evansville in the. And like on sports, like I didn't know there was an Evansville University that was a Division One basketball. I didn't know Bruce Pearl coached at Southern Indiana, which was in Evansville. Bruce Pearl coached at Tennessee, when I was a student when he was a coach. I didn't know anything about Evansville, Indiana. God brings us here. We know no one here. Our families live nowhere here, and God provided. God provides for whatever circumstance He puts you in. The last point is, is that Christ's grace is satisfying for us all. The last passage here, last verse, 17, they all ate and were satisfied. It wasn't like they had a snack, right? It wasn't like God provided, Christ provided them a snack. They ate and were satisfied. I mean, everyone ate. None were left out of the food. They were all satisfied. You know, like when during like Thanksgiving, when you eat so much, you have to like take off the button of your top hand and put your zipper down. Maybe men do that. But like, that's probably how cool they were. I mean, they were satisfied. That's one of my favorite parts that everybody, everybody loves, right? It's when the dad always sits down in the chair and unbuttons his pants. It's kind of like this satisfied feeling. This satisfied. They're satisfied. Christ's grace is sufficient. All are welcome at the table. None are left out to eat of Christ's satisfying grace. All are welcome. All will be satisfied by his grace. Is that about where you come from or what you've done? The limits are not based on your talents or your opportunities. People think, well, if I had some more opportunities, I would have more wealth or more power. If I just had more opportunities, if I had just more talent, I would, if I came from the right family, the right genes. That's not a part of this. All are welcome at Christ's table. Not some have the right, all have the right to come to the table. And Christ's grace is satisfying. It's not only sufficient, but it's satisfying. Christ's grace is Sufficient and satisfying for all. He comes from heaven, not earth. The things of this earth do not satisfy. The things of this earth are not sufficient. Things from heaven are satisfying and sufficient. We even know from James 1:17, every good gift comes from above, right? Every good gift comes from above. And God's gifts are satisfying. They're sufficient. And we need to trust in God's goodness. Trust in Christ's goodness. If you have Christ, you lack nothing. Because his grace is satisfying. Satisfying is a word that you don't need anything else because you're full. And the thought that you need more friends or more relationships or more money or more opportunities and that will satisfy you is dead wrong. Christ is satisfying enough. You lack nothing in Christ. Stop living like you lack something. You lack nothing if you have Christ. What was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. Even the disciples were cared for in Christ, overwhelming and satisfying grace. There were 12 baskets. That's That's not something you just overlook. It's not an accident. The 12 baskets were for the disciples. He was compassionate on his disciples as well. He knows you and cares for your needs. You're not alone in your overwhelming task. He will provide. His grace is sufficient and satisfying to you as well. It's not just satisfying... Satisfying for the masses, it's sufficient for the masses, it's satisfying and sufficient for you as well. That's important for me as a pastor to know that the God's grace isn't just for you, but it's for me as well. That it's satisfying and sufficient for me. That I need to hear the gospel and trust in the gospel for my salvation. It's not just for the people in the pews, it's for me in the pulpit. Grace and the gospel is for me. And it's satisfying and sufficient in my concerns and my struggles. But it's sufficient and satisfying to me. That my worth and value is not how many people are in the pieces, how many people listen to these sermons, how much praise we get, but Christ is good enough. Mm-hmm. I feel like these disciples sometimes, don't you? Just overwhelmed all the time. How am I going to accomplish this task? What am I going to do? I don't have enough money, enough time, enough, enough to, able, to be able to accomplish this. And we forget the one major variable, which is Christ, that he provides. I remember that, I, I remember that didn't, and, and um, Robert remember this. Remember when we took up to the top of the mountain that we saw all over Camendu? Mm-hmm. It was sad, right? Because, like, the, the, the task of reaching that many people with the gospel is overwhelming, right? It just, like, hits you like a, like a truck. And you're like, how am I ever going to do this? How are these people ever going to reach this many people with the gospel? Think of Evangel, thousands of people who don't know Christ. It's an overwhelming task. But Christ will provide. And what does he tell us to do? He says, feed them. I want to end with this. There was an article in the Wall Street Journal this weekend and it's based off a book called Late Bloomers. And the author, Richard Carlgaard, talks about how this, our culture is completely over... Celebrating early achievers, right? So if you're 12 and you've already started your multi-million-dollar like startup company, like applaud, right? Like wow, I wish my 12-year-old would be able to, to to build Facebook 2.0 and be able to sell it for billions of dollars. Well, I have a great kid, and we, we kind of celebrate over-celebrate eat early achievers. <coughs> like you want you want to be the you want to be on the list of the 20 under 40 or the 40 under 40 or the 35 under thir- 35 or 30 under 30, right? You want to be on that where I was such an achiever and so early on that I'm recognized. This kind of early blooming validation that I'm going to be a top earner, I'm going to be a top person because I with so much at such a young age. Funny thing is, I know some of you are sports people, Tom Brady was not an early bloomer. When he was coming out of high school, he had a zero star rating, like in R, meaning like, not very good, probably should go to Division II school. And now he's considered one of the greatest workbacks ever. Nick Foles, who beat Tom Brady in the Super Bowl with the Eagles, was also non-rated coming out of high school. Some of these guys, when we think about early bloomers, there's so much emphasis on early bloomers, and we totally ignore experience, resilience, and our lifelong capacity to grow. Redeemer did not sprout like a million, a thousand people the first year we were in church, right? There are some churches in this town that started like a month after they started, and they already had over thousands of people in church. So they're early bloomers. There is a church that could probably come out of Crossroads or One Life that could dwarf us in size. And there's this thought that, okay, they're the ones that are being blessed. They're the ones that are accomplishing the task. to have a thousand people and to just have millions of people being ministered and all these different things. We're called to do what? Feed the people the word. Christ is the provision that our neighbors need and we are called to organize and distribute the word of Christ. We feed the people the bread from heaven. The people from this story in John chapter 6 are rebuked by Jesus because all they wanted was bread. They didn't want the word of God. They just wanted bread. They wanted Jesus to enter in this welfare state where all of them would be fed all the time. They wouldn't have to do anything ever again. And they would just be able to sit around and Jesus would give them bread. And they didn't want Christ. They didn't want the Word. And so many people don't want the Word. They just want bread. And we are not called to give them bread. We are called to feed them the Word. To feed the people the Word. The building calendar, a budget, a staff is all pointed to feeding the people the word. We must be faithful in that calling regardless of size or quantity of the building, the budget, the resources, the staff, the people that God provides. We must be faithful and we must feed the people the word. To organize and distribute the word. And Christ's provision is sufficient for us to fulfill our calling. God provides for us. Whatever circumstance, whatever situation he places this church in, he will provide for us to feed the people the world. Now, if we feed them something else, he will not provide that. If we want money to be able to just do whatever we want with, based on our own will, he will not provide for that. If our desire is to feed the people the word, he will provide for us. And his provision will satisfy us. We will be satisfied in Christ's grace as he uses us to fulfill this overwhelming task. To reach the nations with the gospel. And he will use us as his church to do so. And he will provide us as we go out in this overwhelming task. We will help one another, we will care for one another, we will pray with one another, we will assist one another to bring the gospel to people, to feed people the word. And God will provide, Christ will provide as we do that. Let's pray. The Lord, we ask, Lord, that you would give us experience, that you would give us resilience, that you would um, give us faith to live out. This calling, Lord, that you have placed upon me, you have placed upon the people here, this church at large, to distribute and organize the feeding of the word, Lord. Lord, you have called us no other task but to feed the word to people. The bread of heaven, the bread that comes from heaven, is Christ Himself, and we are to feed people Christ Jesus, Lord. which is the satisfying Word of God, this the sufficient Word of God that satisfies our needs. And Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would give us a hunger here, Lord, to feed the people of the Word. And I know that it's an overwhelming task. I know, Lord, that it needs faith. I know that it needs prayer. But that we would rely on your provision, Lord, as you provided for the disciples. That you would provide for us, Lord. That you would give us our needs to be able to do what you've called us to do. Lord, may we be faithful in what you give, and you provide but if there's anyone here who's not a follower of Christ, that they would not be ones who just come to church seeking just bread and, and seeking certain things of this world, they would come seeking Christ and that you would provide Christ, that you would provide Christ to be